Here I was, looking right into the life of a man who had been destroyed by war. He had seen the worst of men, but insisted they were better. They had to be. What universe would entrust its secrets to a dark heart? If Meryl could see behind his story to a place where catastrophe was as necessary as joy, where the impossible turned just beyond the edges of our sight, then so could I. Welcome to Pod 49, a Lodge 49 fan conversation podcast about the show on the AMC Network. I am joined by my regular co-hosts, Jim and Bart. How are you doing today, fellas? Good, good. I believe we have a birthday today. Oh, that's right. We are recording on Jim's birthday. Happy birthday, Jim. Woo-hoo. Thank you. So, uh, out there in listener land... Uh, Jim is a man of mystery, so you can't necessarily find him online, but uh, throw the pod 49 a, a happy birthday gift or gif or whatever when you listen to this episode. It'll be much appreciated. All right, let's let's uh, jump into it. This is going to be a slightly different episode just because there's so much to talk about. Let's just ju- go right into our hot takes. Jim, start us off. My hot take is related to something we talked about in our first two recap of season one episodes, which was that we weren't sure after season one how committed the show was to the mysteries and the the magical realism and the alchemy. At least uh, a couple of us were kind of reticent about getting too excited about that aspect of the show or, or being, or what we said was that we were more into the human element and the characters. And now that the show has seemed to to go in a direction of more fully embracing that aspect with the scrolls and the alchemy and and now, you know, discovering maybe a portal to Antarctica or something <laughs> below Orbis, whatever's going on, you know, I am excited about it and I am letting the show, you know, take me wherever wherever it's going. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about that. Yeah, I feel kind of the same way. I know I, I said like about the recap of season one that it was more of the human element that I was kind of interested in. But by now I'm I, I can't like it, it feels almost like cliffhangery kind of show where I'm I can't wait for the next episode. I can't wait to find out more about the scrolls. I want to get back down to Mexico, you know, with that uh, the tease with them in the airplane. We obviously know they recover the scrolls at some point. So, yeah, I'm all in now. Uh, I, and I think in a way they had all the characters have been developed so well that now they can kind of focus on more of the mysteries and it's it's so fun to watch it's so kind of exciting too yeah that that's my big takeaway on jim's hot take is that you know this is a low and slow show anyway you know they take the time they're patient they they know pacing so they have us bought into two important things the world and the characters before they really start hitting you know the the go button on the on the plot so so many shows actually are so plot driven that you actually feel like plot point to plot point to plot point and you're like I don't you know I I understand that's somewhat interesting but I actually don't care about any of these people or the world that I'm in I'm just like being you know whisked away from plot point to plot point this show took actually an almost opposite style approach mm-hmm. and that actually leads into my hot take which I'll, I'll quickly give here which is that this is quite frankly one of the best hours of television I've watched in in a very long time and will easily be on any short list of favorite hours of television I've ever seen and that folks is you know on top of a lot of hours of television watched <laughs> 
Uh, so that's no small statement, at least for me and my uh, personal opinion. So I just thought this was a time capsule episode, and that that is my uh, that's my hot take. Bart, uh, my hot take is PTSD. It seemed to be at the forefront of the episode, and obviously at the very end, we have Larry waking up in a nightmare and Jackie comforting him, which is fairly obvious, but then it kind of dawned on me just how much more of a theme the PTSD is. It, it seems like um, Fritz Merrill had PTSD after going to war, insisting that people were still good, and that he creates the orbiscope as some way, you know, I, it's mentioned, I think, in the in the first couple episodes that he created that to, to cure himself from his ill, which we don't really know what it is, and I remember thinking that um, I wonder how that would cure anybody because I wasn't really thinking of it being like maybe a psychological disorder more than a physical one. Um, and that maybe somehow looking at that is a way of, I don't know. I don't know what the science behind it would be, but now I can kind of understand it more. And so I also wonder, does Connie have some form of PTSD that we don't really know about? Is that why it's going to work for her? But then there's also like lots of the characters who seem a little bit shell-shocked um, I know when Gil gets up to give his presentation of the Phydro, then he, you know, kind of admits that he's not really that into it and that, like, he just doesn't really know what else to do. And I think he said something like, there is no future. That's what he says. There is no future. And the episode had a lot to do with the past. And so, but even in these small moments, the, uh, yeah, like Jim, you were saying, the that one scene when, when he's describing to Dud what the mystical night is about, about getting up on stage and he mentions, you know, some people talk about, you know, really funny stories, interesting ones, not the kind that you dream about. Like, there just seemed to be an overriding theme of the show this week. And we also, we have three known veterans now, right, that we, in the plot of the story. So, Larry, um, what is the MC's name? Uh, Does anyone Bert, I believe. Bert, and also, obviously, Ernie. So, we know, that's, we know three veterans. Right. All right, so let's let's uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about just the the craft of the show in general in, in just a few minutes. But Jim, why don't you give us a rundown of the direct creative team that was responsible for Circles? Uh, for the second week in a row, we had Alethea Jones directing. The writing credit for this episode went to Peter Ako, who is one of the two showrunners, along with uh, Jim Gavin. We had some featured actors on this episode who aren't part of the regular cast, who all did a great job, I thought. And I'll do my best with the pronunciations, of course. First and foremost, we had Cara Mantella as Jackie Loomis. And we have seen, we did see her in, in season one um, a little bit, but her story really drove this entire episode and just an amazing performance in that role. And then we had Jim Chandler playing Wallace Smith as a whiny, self-deluded fraud. <laughs> and then finally, Patrick Bramall played Werner Goss, the slick exec who seems like he was going to treat Jackie as an equal, but then revealed himself to be yet another man who was overlooking her contributions. Right. And actually kind of steals her idea, I think, too, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he does it in an almost sub in, in an unconscious way where... She says it, and he gets to thinking. And then at one point, he's when he's explaining the Bitcoin scheme he's got up on his chalkboard, he mentions that he thought of it after lunch. And he's about to go into more explanation, and then it cuts, or she says something. But it's almost like she definitely planted the idea in his head, and now 
like a week later, he can't even remember that it was her that did that. It's just something that popped into his head. He just says, oh yeah, you were there. Yeah. And just having just checked IMDb, the character who's the MC of Mystic Chords of Memory, he, he's Big Ben. Big Ben. Um, Big, Ben Big Ben Peters. Yeah. Gonna, yeah, Big Ben Peters, that's right. All right, so Thomas Patterson, hats off this week. We've had a couple episodes this week that have only had one or two uh, original songs and were mostly driven by Andrew Carroll's score, which is always awesome. But this one actually had ten uh, original songs throughout and really was a masterful use of these songs, especially in helping to blend between different time jumps. But we always put the link to this in the show notes so you can find these and then you can listen to them. You get them on Spotify, this, that, and the other thing. But... Uh, Four Hits and a Miss with their instrumental Do It, The Cashmere's with Satisfied Part 2, Lonnie Russ with Something Old, Something New, Burt Whedon, Guitar Highway, The O.C.'s, actually just O.C.'s with their song C, Jerry and the Catal- uh, Catalina's The Arabian Night, Tom Disvelt, Syncopation, Broadcast, uh, you know, one of the, the patron band saints of the show with their song The Book Lovers, Pentangle Traveling Song and Emma Trica with Sunday Reverie. And none of that even includes the original song uh, that that Scott sings, which we can talk about a little bit later. But just some great songs, a lot of uh, classic 60s English folk in there, but just a, a great rundown of original songs for this week. And Jim, you wanted to you wanted to mention something before we jumped on about the, the title of the episode. The title was Circles, and there's definitely... A lot of circular plot elements and other references to circles in the episode. I'm just going to mention a few. I'm sure there are way more, and maybe people could chime in with ones they noticed. The episode starts and ends with Jackie hugging Larry in bed. In the beginning, he shrugs her off. Mom, what are you doing? And But welcomes in at the end when she's comforting him when he's having his PTSD dream. The actual orbiscope is, of course, circular, we also have a circular movement of the camera uh, when Jackie and Wallace discover the secret room in the lodge and when we change back and forth between past and present. One other thing, the, the orbit, the orbis currency is, of course, circular. A round token, yeah. Did you guys have any others you wanted to mention? I mean, there's a lot to say about circles and circular elements, but I would also say about the title itself, I thought was very interesting that the uh, first episode of the season was All Circles Vanish, and now the sixth episode we get Circles. And for whatever reason, I think that's um, just not something I've ever seen before. It would seem like Circles would come first. Like, like if a show did Circles as the first episode and All Circles Vanish as the last episode, then I'd be like, ah, oh, they're tying it into you know the circles that it created or vanishing in this last episode or something. But to do it the other way around, I think, is also playing with this conception of time. Um, of what is happening when, you know, which reminds me very much of the, like, the the mystical map versus the real map and how alchemists work on both. It seems like the show is kind of doing a very similar thing in its storytelling. Yeah, a lot to, a lot to talk about. One other thing I wanted to mention was the quote that Jackie says in the beginning, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. That's from the novel Ulysses by James Joyce. I think she sees the scrolls as a way to change history or make the world better, somehow change things for the better. And by the end, we're back in the old pattern of a man with some power and influence 
using the scrolls for the purposes of war and making money. And that's the same old story. That's circular history. Yeah, even though Werner himself says, you know, uh, alchemist, alchemist must be of a pure heart. And that's why he says at first that he almost doesn't want to have that power. You know, he doesn't trust his own himself with it. But of course, when she brings him, he dives right in. Okay, so normally this is the part of the show where we do kind of a formal scene by scene or kind of in-depth recap. We're going to scrap that this week. One, because there's just so much to talk about. Two, because we're assuming you all watch the show anyway. And we just wanted to have kind of a broader conversation. We obviously in this episode get a lot of flashback from Jackie, uh, Jackie's perspective, and that gives fills in a lot of backstory around Orbis, around the Lodge, around the scrolls, so lots of plot points there. And then I've often talked about in the show how there's we're really kind of following two lodges. One, Dud's Lodge, and then two Liz's dot lodge, which is basically just the social circles and uh, kind of social connectivity that's helping them through life. And so we get a lot of plot at the lodge. Uh, we we discover where Blaze is. We discover what Blaze is doing. We get updates on the Scott, Ernie, and um, Connie relationship. We get look into other people at the lodge's life, and then with Liz, Jeremy, Champ, and. Uh, Gerson and their their adventures with edibles, uh, living <laughs> squatting at Orbis. We get lots of updates on on those characters as well. So we're really in those kind of three areas for the entire show, and we're going to dive in much deeper. But we're just going to sort of jump in and have a wide ranging conversation on a few different topics around really just this remarkable, remarkable episode. And let's stick right there before we jump actually into the narrative. And let's take a second here and just talk about this as television, as a, as a, a quality of the show. Jim mentioned a, a few of the creatives behind it. Althea Jones, I just have to say, directing television is not easy because it's a fractured narrative. You're usually jumping in at some part of it. You're not telling a story from beginning to middle and end. You're having to come in and keep a ship going rather than start the ship middle beginning, middle, and end. And you also have to keep a certain look and feel that the show has established. You're not you're not establishing that. You may be part of establishing that, but you're having to maintain it. So TV is generally, this is changing a little bit in the last couple of years, but TV is not really a director's medium like film. Althea Jones is someone who I think is changing that conversation because what she does in this show and having to control all aspects of the, sh- of the look and feel of the show was just visually stunning. You could almost not know what was going on and enjoy this episode from a visual storytelling perspective. You know, uh, when I first describing the show to people and saying, oh, I really love the show, you should check it out. And then when they do, they usually make the connection that Dud is sort of like the dude. You know, his name is Dud and there's the dude and stuff like that. And I think now that we're so deeply in that you don't really necessarily feel that connection to that character any longer. But this episode, to me, and I, this is very high praise coming from me, um, I hope it's taken that way, but that this felt like a, like I was watching a Coen Brothers movie. Just uh, all the art direction was so on point, all the costumes, the props, and then the ability to tell a story through a narrator, which I think... I never have any problem with narrators, but I remember taking a film class and and studying the concept that the idea that a, a narrator is, is negative for film... Uh, use because you should show it instead of telling the story and that it's kind of like a cliche that's to be avoided almost and I just sort of I, I've always felt like the Coen brothers do it really well and I felt like this um, 
I could have just watched uh, Jackie talk about and retell a story for days. I mean, it was so entertaining. It was so fun. And like that scene when they drop acid, basically, and they're they're like sitting on the couch, and then when it just shows them, and it's like they're it's it looks like they're just on a black back screen, but then I kind of noticed that it, it was almost like the pattern of the couch. It's just like the couch has become this giant broad plane, and Blaze is sitting there. I mean, that looked, I mean, that just seemed like a, a Cohen Brothers shot to me, and not in like a rip offy kind of way, but just sort of like in a in a great inspired way or something. But it was all, it was wonderful to to look at. Yeah, I really liked in that scene the framing of their bodies and the way they're positioned. When Blaze is there, it's almost like Jackie can see him. Yeah, I love that you get that. That's there's this subtle. It is subtle. It's not overt, but there's this subtle connection between Blaze and her, and even Blaze in. I love how they inserted him into those flashbacks. Like there's that one scene. Uh, at Lodge One during the party when she's going down to get the scrolls and Blaze, like, moves out of the way of the drunk guy or somebody. Yeah, you know, guy some, with the blindfold so it's on, almost, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's almost got, like, a physical presence in the flashback. I thought that was such a neat little little piece of that. The producer on the show, Nina Jack, on Twitter, did an excellent job of just running down all of the creative talent behind the show and the costume, costume people and the prop people and the actors. So they obviously knew they had a special episode because a lot of the creatives online were ready, you know, to just give each other props and to really call out all the people that went into making such a special episode. So if you kind of want to run down of those people, look for Nina Jack's Twitter feed and, and, and actually I, I think we retreated it on, pod 49 so you uh, twitter account you can find it there it does a really nice job of just highlighting all of the creative professionals that worked on this episode similar to your point bart around narration which i know can be you know is kind of a controversial or you know has supporters and detractors in terms of visual storytelling so do flashbacks in general and i really thought they did a great job not only of making you know when you were in a you, the modern timeline or the, the flashback timeline, but also the blend, especially in a lodge where you've got these kind of like, because there's this persistence of the lodge as a social gathering place as whatnot. And there's a couple scenes where we go from like Orbis uh, executives into the, you know, the characters that we know as the modern lodge. They did some really, the, Bart, you mentioned the Liz crossing behind Jackie and the Orbis uh, hallways. Yeah. They did some great, great, not only, you knew from the look and feel when you were in these different places, but you also got that feeling of transformation, of the alchemical process of blending between the two that I think really helped you feel like you were on that kind of, you know, let's be frank, a hallucinatory journey, which is what the episode really was from start to finish, regardless of timeline. Also, the transition from when the champ is giving them a, a walk around his new pad and he's in the Orbis warehouse, and they kind of go, they walk past this door, and then it uh, becomes that scene where Jackie and um, Werner are talking, and that's when she kind of, like, invents Bitcoin. Like, why can't the idea be the thing, you know? And, yeah, so you see the decay of the modern building as it is now, then back into the past where it was, like, sort of bustling. Yeah, well, I could keep going on. But, yeah, I, I really, I love the way they pulled those transitions between uh, flashbacks into present reality. And it kind of, almost every scene where they do it has this beautiful transition with, like, Liz in the background and then it kind of cuts to Liz. Or um, just in that, in the very beginning when she's she's in the library and she's studying 
while Wallace is sleeping. I think she like sort of points and then the camera is like, it's like at the side of her and then it kind of pans around in the circular motion. And then we, we're seeing her with the, the bar in the background. And then later when um, they're setting up for the night and they're bringing the chairs into it, she just kind of walks through and like you said, just sort of like blades around the other characters as well to kind of set up the chairs. All those transitions were just beautiful. Similar to the sort of before and after look and feel of Orbis, they do a similar thing with a lodge, right? You see a kind of a shinier version, you know, newer version of the lodge, and then you get the kind of more rundown one we're used to in the, the modern timeline. A lot less people, and one of my too. Favorite. Right? Yeah. yeah, but I, I love the visual, the link of the links, you know, because we see the, the uh, taxidermied links in those... 60 scenes of the lodge and then we have Connie bringing it back from the closet or the basement or wherever she grabs that. Yeah. Uh, I love th- I love that physical token too. It's not all, you know, like th- that that was brought forth there. So so many great so many great connectors between the timelines. Yeah, and in fact, I think Connie um, it seems like Connie's got like a she's got some something to research to write a story about. And it's interesting that she finds herself in that storage closet and that's when she decides to take off the blindfold. And it is it is sort of like, it seems to me that she's reawakening, maybe curing herself by, you know, she's going to probably research into the Parabola group and write some great story about it, whether it gets into the local paper or not. But it seems like she's kind of like getting, she's curing herself through like reawakening into what her passion is, which is like research and writing. Maybe she'll have, get a book out of it. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, because that, that's right. She was already kind of semi on the case in season one, right? Or, or pitching, basically, when she gets fired. That scene where she she's pitching her new idea and she gets fired yeah. as a response. And so, yeah, I love that idea that that the the healing journey really is the lodge and and the the research. You know, because ostensibly she thinks she's unhealable physically, but she's trying. She was trying to heal her writer's block. And Clara always claimed that those were intertwined. Or what was, what was her, Melinda, who knows? Uh, she always was claiming that those things were intertwined, so maybe they are now. Connie's actually a great bridge into a topic that we wanted to talk about, which is really a theme of the show, which was feminism. Between Connie, Jackie, and Liz, we get we really get a story centered on these females and their journey, and not only their journey of self-discovery and, and advancement of the plot, but also at least with Jackie and to a lesser degree, actually with all three of them to different degrees, having to do that against the headwind of living in a male-dominated society and and culture. Uh, or being supported by and having allies from that from a, a male male culture or male perspective, which might be a little bit more Liz's journey. Jim, you you had some of the, the first thoughts on this, and then I'd love to just explore how we thought that drove this episode and maybe actually is even an emergent theme of the series. Yeah, with Jackie, you know, we saw a lot of examples of not only, you know, Wallace ignoring her or talking over her or discounting her contributions, but also the way she reacted to it. We heard in her narration a little bit of that. She said, when you've been erased from enough stories, you stop noticing. Yeah. You know, that's when Wallace is assuming that he's some kind of chosen one because they they together have found the secret library. But she did a really good job, too, in those moments of showing us the emotions that Jackie's feeling 
without expressing them to Wallace at first, and then it also happens with Werner. And, you know, there's the scene when we first see them having sex, Jackie and Wallace. She's clearly uninterested, not getting much out of it. There's the whole escapade in, in London where, you know, we see her taking the reins and, and being the hero, if you will, who, you know, goes down and, and, and steals the scrolls. And then he takes credit and, and turns himself into some kind of Indiana Jones. Where he <laughs> literally vomits and passes out, right? Because of, he's, Yeah, after he's so he scared. vomited and passed out. <laughs> after she suggests that he just take the elevator instead of scaling down the elevator shaft, which I thought right. was really funny. So, yeah, and with, with Liz... We see her, you know, having the respect and affection of all of her coworkers who, you know, what does Jeremy say when he's like, we're going to accidentally launch you in the trebuchet and you're going to die. And it's like, we need you. Don't you see what's going to happen? <laughs> we're going to joke about it. Then it's going to really happen. <laughs> and he's so frightened of, of life without Liz because she's such his guiding star. I also love... If I could go back to the um, the Lodge One with uh, Jackie, there's this great scene after she steals the scrolls and she's kind of sitting in the chair and she's smoking a cigarette. It looks post-coital. I mean, there's no two ways about it. And then Wallace kind of wakes up finally after he passed out and she he literally, she like blows the cigarette in his face, <laughs> like in his direction. Yeah. It's almost like she's... You know, she just she just cheated on him and she's like shoving it in his face. It's almost like the not necessarily foreshadowing to her soon to be new lover and Werner, but but also just like the scrolls are almost like her lover. The way she's kind of holding it. Yeah. Her leg draped over the chair. I just thought that was a very, you know, for all the points that it makes of like like sort of why feminism needs to exist because of the way the men treat her. This was sort of like a very powerful feminist, like she was in charge of that, in a sense, you know what I mean? And that, and that kind yeah, of and angle of feminism as well. Taking the initiative and, you know, succeeding at that goal of getting the scrolls gave her satisfaction that he hadn't and couldn't. Right. If you think about, if we stick on Jackie for a few minutes, I mean, we get such a... We get two in her life, the two men in her life, or the uh, romantic men. Actually, that's actually a third. The third, three main men in her life really do describe kind of what feminism has to contend with or is against or even is in support of in some way. We get that the, the Wallace character is just, you know, a... You know, he well, everything he says in his death speech is true, right? He's a broken man, he's a wimp, he's a fraud, all those things. I'm not, you know, we, we know what he is. And we get so many great examples of that that she has to both basically live under this disgusting shadow of this small man. Then with Werner, two W names, with Werner, we get someone who challenges her, excites her, titillates her treats her as some kind of equal with boundaries, right? So I guess not equal, but like has a different space in her life. But then when things get important, he shuts her off. Like when he, he finds that the, the ledger part of currency, which is interesting, he definitely discovers, but he, he uses that as a bait and switch from other discoveries he finds in the scrolls, right? It's like one that he thinks she can handle or one that he's willing to admit. And so he's the kind of, industrialist, you know, uh, master of the universe, alpha male. I mean, I just have to say as a quick aside, that line about we'll have so much yeah. peace, we'll be yeah, bored yeah. was just, ama- so much, just so amazing. So much winning. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, so much winning. Um, 
but but that so he's the embodiment of that right which is is more appealing but ultimately just as unsatisfying yeah and then we get larry where there's something about the connection the nurture in a positive way even if it has some darker you know even if, if taking care of it isn't all, is can be daunting that is also sort of part of the you know at least the archetypes of the female journey so it's really interesting to see her kind of exist amongst those three you know the sort of man the the broken man child the alpha male and the thing to be nurtured the, the male to be nurtured was a really interesting to see her interact with those three archetypes yeah and of course even though she's nurturing larry he kind of like like what are you doing mom and i mean which is you know very typical kids will do that kind of thing but the rejection of that i thought was also sort of something yeah. that was like poignant about that as well and she jim you mentioned a couple of them but she just has some great lines that really become like a, a manifesto of, the, of her worldview around like small men and all of that. So some good stuff there. Yeah, this, like, like all good, like all stories, important stories or something that uh, it starts with an insecure man. I mean, it's like the, it's like kind of the way yeah. it begins, you know, the whole thing. It's like, it just sets you up. Oh, and how can we forget the diary and her line around, yes. uh, Mm-hmm. putting it through the vessel of a man There's or whatever better chance like she of even knew at that point getting out into the world if a man takes it yeah exactly yeah yeah which and i think blaze would admit his wrong well he does admit his wrongness but you know but that that worked to a thousand percent degree because we get a couple scenes in previous episodes of blaze dismissing her as just you know eye candy or whatever hanger on uh, but then, through the vessel of the Wallace Smith and the discovery of the diary, he has—he's sort of awakened to that reality and admits it. But but that meant that her strategic decision to do what she did actually had it pay off. The intended consequence, you know, that she she was she yeah. thought and it it did work. So let's let's get back to uh, let's actually let's move on to Connie a little bit and sort of her you know so. We talked about how she's being healed, what part of her is being healed, kind of a, her finding her duende, because she was another con- uh, character that had lost his, her duende through most of season one and into season two, So, which is really her creative craft, is right, is being, is telling stories of, of, of her, her for per- profession, the things that drive her. And we really get a contrast to, even when she was up to her neck in romance and men and love problems and sex and all of that, her duende was actually dwindling because she was disconnected to her creative and professional passions. And really what this journey has been is a, a reconnection to that, so much so that we actually get a surprise breakup. Last week we all talked about Scott and her breaking up, which still could happen. But we get a really adult breakup with Ernie. We'll see about Scott. We can talk about that here now. But she really knows that walking away from those romantic relationships is part of rediscovering her her craft and her purpose. Yeah, I thought the storyline with Scott serenading her and writing this song for her, that kind of plays into another aspect of feminism or of how women have been treated in history, and that's, you know, being put on a pedestal. Think of, like, the Petrarchan sonnet. The, that breakup with Ernie, they realize they've both been looking at each other as a fulfillment of this, you know, wanting to go back to the past, and she says, maybe someday we can see each other with new eyes, something right. uh, along those lines. And that's a statement that you could extrapolate to men and women generally, too. <laughs> you know, We could start over. We could start seeing, yeah. Ah, that's a great point. I also think I did sort of make that as my prediction that the, 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 the trio was going to sort of break up. And, 
and obviously Ernie and Connie are broken up, and then it looked like Scott and Connie were breaking up until that song, but I guess it remains to be seen. She seemed very moved, obviously. Let's talk about that for a second, kind of get back into sort of, for a second, less thematic and more just sort of, you know, what we think is going to happen. First of all, Eric Allen Kramer wrote that song, performed it, played it and performed it on the show, and then obviously probably did the, the different tracking. And if anybody knows, I would love to know who recorded the version that plays over the credits. It's a female, female singer. I don't think I've, I haven't been able to find that out, but there's also a great version of the song as the closing credits. So let's just say for a second, just awesome job, Eric Allen Kramer. That dude yeah. is, you know, very talented. And also think about for a second um, just how good the music is in general. And so what a, like, if you said, okay, I'm going to write a song for it, like, imagine the kind of pressure you're on, and I'm not sure what he does, you know, obviously he does acting, I don't know, maybe he's in a band or he's always been a musician or something, just kind of like what it would take to kind of create that, to knock it out of the park the way he did, in in all that sort of musical pressure, because I was like, if what if he created a song that they didn't like, and, you know, and but anyway, on top of that, just that like how kind of special the show is that with all this other stuff that's going on, that one of the cast members could create it could contribute in such a creative way. I just I mean, I think that's really remarkable. I, you know, I don't know. It really stuck out to me when I saw that he had written it and performed it. I was just kind of like I guess I just assumed that they because they have such great you know, music for the show that somehow they had they had kind of hired somebody or got somebody to or found a song that exists out in the world that nobody knew of. And then to find out that it was like an in-house job kind of blew me away. Watching him, because it was obvious that he was performing it because you could, you know, usually they do things like cut away from hands. Right. Like, it's obvious when there's, you know, but to, you knew he was performing that, even before you knew he wrote it, you knew he was performing it. And that added the authenticity to the scene. Mm-hmm. That made it super powerful when they fall through the ceiling. You you, you get mad at them for a second just because you're like, let the dude finish his song, <laughs> which is something about Scott. This guy could be well. This one, the show could easily write him as a, a a villain, and they don't. And the way they write him in his performance, the fact that you have as much empathy for him as anyone else on the show is remarkable. And then in the context of our conversation around feminism and and um, Connie in general, it's such an example of male toxicity's toxicity to itself. Mm. Because like what I love what Jim said, and it adds poignance to the song actually around like that's putting a woman on a pedestal, and it's kind of beautiful and gross at the same time. But also like his inability to listen to others and actually lead through vulnerability and all these things that are like it, it's you know he's a big dude and he's a some kind of cop or authority figure, border patrol, not uh, harbor patrol. So his, like, even though he's obviously a very sensitive person, right, but his own toxicity about how he's supposed to be as a male in the world, the only the thing it's actually destroying is himself more than anything else. And you really, the character of Scott really carries that forward in, in some interesting and sad ways. So quick, we'll do a quick round of predictions early. Do we think we have a kind of a bittersweet ending to their relationship? Or do you think this song and maybe him being vulnerable and actually dropping some of that facade wins him Connie back? I don't know. I think that Connie has already sort of made her mind up. And so I think maybe she will try to work it out with him and then maybe like in an episode, like for one episode and then maybe in the next episode be like, look, 
I actually think it's time for us to kind of move on, maybe. I was all about the fact that she was going to... I mean, it seemed very... I mean, I thought about it last episode, and it seemed very much this episode. That's why he wouldn't... That's why he won't let her speak, because he knows what she's going to say. Um, and we all know it. But I don't know. She was obviously very moved by the song, and um, so she may reconsider. But I, that's, that's going to be... If I'm going to make a prediction, I'm going to say that she's going to reconsider for an episode and then come back to her original decision next episode. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. I don't. I, I think ultimately she's still gonna move on from him, and like you're saying, recapturing her Duende is part of that. Has been for her, I think, thinking over herself more independently and not being tied down to these relationships that have caused so much stress. Plus, I don't think it's overt, but I I think in a way I'm just thinking this now that, in a sense, Scott, even by the design of the relationship which he admits to, was sort of like they had this fling. And then he found out that she had this disease or whatever and just decided to kind of become her caretaker. And so maybe she was getting more of her sexual enjoyment from Ernie and then Scott is more of just like a comfort station or something, you know what I mean? So we don't know how sexually into Scott she is, you know? She obviously is, they've been through a lot together, so they will always have that. But that could be something that's maybe holding them back as taking their relationship to the next level. So we need to talk about Liz's storyline, right? Yeah, so Liz has her own journey. I think it's less it's less connected to the fight against sort of the patriarchy and more kind of a, a personal narrative, although in my mind she's starting to, like her importance to the overall plot. You know, in parts of season one she felt like this interesting sideline, as did all of the her and her, her posse of, of restaurant employees. But... It really does feel like that grouping, her lodge posse, is starting to emerge as a bigger piece of the plot. So we see that from her storyline. And then I just love also that she's got these male allies that are actually supporting her. And I think when Gershon says, you know, he's like, she dismisses, or she's annoyed, but she dismisses when she finds out Janet stole her story. But, you know, it's kind of like a whatever, typical Liz whatever moment too, but... And Gerson says at the time, but they come back and says, no, you need to do something about this. You know, this is, you know, this is, this is not losing your duende. This is having your duende snatched. Yeah, soul. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they are her, they're allies. They're part of her, they're, they're supporters. They're, they're they're the fellowship that she's bringing forward into, you know, stepping into what plot point, not plot point, but what, what actions and what self-discovery she's going to take. Sorry, I just wanted to cut in to say, like, I, I really, Sonia Cassidy plays a great stoned person, and I think that's kind of a hard thing to do. I don't, I don't know how you show that, well, you know, but uh, she, whenever she's stoned, she looks it, and it's just great. It's just something I've noticed. You know, there's parallels between Liz and Jackie in the idea of getting lost and wanting to be lost. Jackie says that when they're talking about, uh, Warner's talking about the Hermes satellite that's going to map the entire world. And she says the entire world, which to me was a little bit of a callback to the mystical map, which we had a few episodes ago. But she also said, you know, some of us like to get lost. And then later we have the the, uh, conversation between Liz and those guys and and, and Champ, where she seems disturbed by being lost or feeling lost. And uh, Champ says... When you're lost, the best thing to do is to get more lost something like that yeah when you're lost the thing to do is get more lost that's how you reach the right destination and so then she literally does that in the remainder of the episode falling down a hole going through a tunnel not knowing where she is and then ending up we don't know where but she's 
got snow on her, and she's seeing the aurora borealis. And it's also the same hallucinatory, revelatory journey that Dud takes in season one. I think right. it's even the same level of Orbis, right? Mm-hmm. So now they've both they've both had in the same physical location. They've both had this outer body hallucinatory you know, doors are opening style vision, which I think the the twins, one's lost, one's found, fire and water, all those good things. And we've seen them kind of come back to each other and separate and come back to each other. But I think we we sort of got a little bit of a metaphysical lining around the duality of those two. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What do we think about what she saw? I mean, she's obviously on some kind of edible, right? So, but what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, I thought it was significant because when she comes back, they say, Liz, is that snow in your hair? Because at the time, you're like, okay, it's just like sort of some sort of vision. Um, I actually thought she fell into the same exact spot that Dud was in. I just assumed that. I think right? so. And yeah. then yeah. whether she sees what she sees in that room or not, we're not really sure. But then they say, is that snow in your hair? In a weird way, I was like, well, snow would melt. So it wouldn't really, unless they, she, they saw her right when they walked out the door. But nonetheless, I'm going to go with it and say that there is snow in her hair. I, I think, and I also have this weird theory that maybe that picture of Werner when he's supposed to be in the um, North Pole is maybe he's just actually downstairs in that room and that picture is taken. I don't know. I think he was in, in, uh, supposed to be in Antarctica because then Jackie says, what? you know, there's supposedly a Lynx Lodge in Antarctica. Oh, right. All right. But she's not sure if that's a myth or not. Yeah, but I don't think that actually could support Bart's theory because, like, is the, you know, if you think of the true lodge, no, I, I agree. The doorway yeah. to a lodge. Yeah. Okay. I think Werner might just be saying that's where he was, but maybe he was under under Orbis the entire time, or maybe it's a, there's a portal somehow, you know, that yeah. they've discovered something like that. I love the snow and the hair piece because, like, you could easily dismiss it as just oh, that's the the show gives people visions and they're they even like set up that they're on drugs, so like you know, like it's actually logical. But the snow and the hair that was actually the magical realism, like gut punch right there not not the vision itself mm-hmm. and then one other thing i want to mention just from that segment of the story was my favorite moment in the entire episode is when champ and the guys are hanging out in what we think is his house we're kind of like oh champ has a house all of a sudden and then liz comes in oh there's liz and you hear this echo and you see liz, that they're in the orbis warehouse yeah. or factory just the way that was written and directed was amazing just that reveal and just sort of screwing with our minds of oh where is champ living he's got this there's couches and uh it's a cozy space and then whoa all right and then the bullhorn i mean there's so many great visual gags yeah do you want me to pick you up in the golf in the golf cart (laughs) yeah and it was a great set. I, that was, like, back to, like, just how talented everyone working on the show is. Like, it looked amazing. And then, you know, and they're like, oh, look, Champ's all domestic. And, you know, he's got his... And then when they do the pullback of the warehouse. Also, we get hints at it, but I have no idea what kind of squatter yeah. governance is going mm-hmm. on. Because then we get, like, with the guy on the bike with the girl... It's like a rickshaw. Bow and arrow yeah. on the... So we don't know exactly what these math, you know, they broke the contract or whatever. We don't know exactly what any of that is, but it's obviously some bizarre squatting situation. And then I I think you guys back me up. I'm not sure. His place was ransacked when they returned. Yeah, of course. That was that's why they have to leave because they the like Mad Max warriors are on their way to that to their corridor, which is breaking the the treaty. What does he say? Harvey the Halo and his irregulars. Yeah. (laughs) 
so um, and then we get a great you know there's a lot of macro commentary especially about war and industrial complex and you know why you know how we warp and and uh, devalue things for the wrong reasons but of course champ is always there with some good you know kind of like zinger style anti-capitalist lines and so you know he does that bit around france and cathedrals and Mm -hmm. uh, post-industrial age uh warehouses and factories so a a good little you know they they, sometimes they come fast and furious and you miss them especially in an episode like that but he got one in he always does yeah um what is the yeah well yeah he has i don't know yeah that whole scene was great i really loved the the warriors in the background of wherever they are in that giant factory <laughs> and and champ is just resigned to it he's like but but okay we gotta go yeah <laughs> <laughs> but rules system broke you know even he, he reverts to why is it that working and then he's like almost immediately understands it because they never work that's my whole worldview. Right. so great stuff with liz great stuff with all of them oh what do we think so we get like, to kind of wrap up this part of the feminism part and the sort of emergence of these the, the sort of not only just female characters but it's almost a female point of view of the world of the show we get uh jackie says she will come is it liz is it connie is it a combination of both like what do you think about who the she is or what that means i guess i just sort of took that as her you know i one of the things i think about jackie is that she kind of she sort of is able to see the future when she finds out that they put their um, satellite over Southeast Asia because where there's smoke, there's fire. She, you know, her immediate reaction is why? And her eyes kind of bug out. And it's like she immediately puts together that there's going to be a war and my son is just about old enough to get into it. It's like she knows immediately that what the impact it's going to have on her life. And she's able to kind of see these things clearer than, you know, Werner, who's got that same foreign policy that we always use, which is like, you know, you just got to keep your boot on everyone's neck and then the world will be a safe place. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I didn't really take it so literally that it would be Liz. I know that Jim mentioned that. And I just thought that, like, the future is going to be led by a woman or something. That's sort of the more the way I kind of took it. It's hard for me to see that Liz has uh, becomes too involved in the lodge, but obviously that could change. Like you said, I think she does have her own lodge with the with her, you know, restaurant crew. I could see her perspective changing now that she's had this, you know, uh, whatever it might be, vision or actual experience of some other dimension, whatever's going on. But I also thought it was significant on rewatch that in the very beginning when she drops off dud and he's trying to get her to come into the lodge she says there's nothing in there for me and that would be a nice twist of she thinks there's nothing there and then it ends up being very important to her in a way she never could have imagined or it could just be that is stating the case and there isn't anything there for her and there is there are new adventures and whatever planes of awareness for her somewhere else who knows what do you think, Chris? The lodge is a is a piece of a bigger whole, right? And that Liz is in the, the connection of those things, and so Liz is bringing Liz might be leading a different. Maybe it's a, the his, you know parts of the the Orbis connections. I think there's going to be obviously something between that and Omni. You know, so like, is there like a bigger corporate takedown piece that she's driving while? And then duds a lot. I, I think it. I think it's definitely probable that she is the she. But Jim, you said something on 
on our on our text conversation that I also think is interesting, and I think the show is maybe setting up, and is that is Connie is Connie the next um, sovereign protector? Which you know, Jackie was it? By the way, remember Jackie was a sovereign. No, protector. she was a luminous, or she was. Yes, yeah, later we, we find that out in season right, one. Right, yeah, not 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 in the yes in this right, episode. Right, right, right. But we do know she is one eventually. Yeah, it could be multiple she's right. It could just be like with Bart's point, she rising. But mm-hmm. I think we've got you know Liz and her propulsion of the narrative, and if there's a bringing down some larger thing or uncovering it, is definitely got a piece along with Dud. One, you know, Wonder Twin powers activate, and then you know, but does Connie and her connection to Melinda and her connection to the Lodge and her discovery of the, these arcane things, but with a common sense approach, does she does, does she rise in leadership of the Lodge and in the the coming conflict? All right, so that gets us. First of all, this is an episode I think we'll be discussing as we even continue on in our future podcasts, and certainly when we look back at the at the season. And maybe, hopefully not the series at that point, but maybe when we look back at the series, um, when it does wrap, hopefully, fingers crossed, after three seasons, minimum. Because if they end up this season, we gotta we have to lose our minds, people. We have to be prepared. <laughs> Protest! Um, so, that's, I was just thinking about what you were saying, Bart, around Jackie, and that the theme of this, and that theme that connects it to classic mythological stories has been women as seers you know the the seer of delphi and uh, you know these the witches that have dreams and stuff this has been a especially in fantastical mythological literature has been a trope um so much so that it is you know it is a trope not just something that pops up and so i we've and we've gotten those aspects from other uh women characters on the show but jackie being another one another example here which actually connects a lot of great lines she has are actually around that idea that she's actually predicting or or saying what will be. Yeah, I thought that was a very strong point of of her character the whole time was that she was able to kind of like see the, into the future. It's almost like because she's in the background, she can see it with clear, with like the eyes that you need to see it with, as opposed to people who are involved in the in the whole, you know, rat race to get, you know, like they're just, you know, I think it's easy for people to go along with things because they're benefiting from it. So they don't want to see these other things because he's got a very important job. He probably makes a lot of money. So he's not going to draw the connection because he doesn't want to draw the connection that this is just going to mean more war. You know, that, that like uh, disingenuous optimism, you know, because the way the world works for you is positive because you're getting rewarded in it. Board of peace. All right, so lots, obviously, to discuss, and we'll, we'll be referencing, discussing, theorizing about this episode for a long time, or as long as we run and do this podcast. But it is time, it is that time, uh, for our Alchemist of the Week. Uh, we did not do a poll, so we have no popular uh, fan opinion. Maybe we'll do a post one this week, uh, and then we change it up a little bit. But we do have ours... Jim, who is your Alchemist of the Week? My Alchemist of the Week is Blaze for two reasons. One, he pulled the shark tooth out of Dud's leg. And the other is that he figured out that it was Jackie and not Wallace who wrote the diary. And he was able to learn her entire story and gain new perspective from that. Bart, who's your alchemist of the week? Um, I'm actually, I don't know if this is a bit of a cop-out or not, but uh, I'm going to go with Peter Ako and Alethea Jones because I felt like the way that the show was brought together this week, they like it stood out so much as like a, um, 
above and beyond sort of all the characters and the way that they sort of were able to filmically, visually show you, like I felt like we, the, we were in the orbiscope and when those scenes did those transitions, it was almost like you, you know, there was the, the, the circle that's behind it, the circle that's inside it. It was like those two things were sort of moving and so that transition between the past and the present very much reminds me of that alchemical map, like I would keep saying or whatever. So to me, that combination of the, the, the story and the, and the way it was uh, put to screen, that I'm going to say that they're my alchemist of the week. Well, I'm going to have, I'll hold down Captain Literal this week. I don't always like to be that person, but I, I just think I have to name Jackie, Jackie Loomis. She, so many transformations that she made both in herself in her worldview, in other people's lives, for the scrolls, um, actually figuring pieces of it out. <laughs> she helped, she transformed Wallace Smith from from uh, living to dead, <laughs> <laughs> which we didn't really talk about. That, I mean, it it's kind of mind-blowing, <laughs> that, that whole, like, you know, yeah, dude, do it. Yeah. Do, take the heroic dose. <laughs> you have nothing left to give. <laughs> Um, it's wild. That's one way to that's one way to break up with someone, I guess. Um, uh, so yeah, so I'm naming uh, Jackie Loomis as my alchemist of the week, uh, and going from there. All right, we did lots of doors are opening, and so many doors are opening in this episode in general. But this is the moment where we do some predictions about the next episode or the next couple of episodes. I can go ahead and start. I've been on a bit of a hot streak here, so. Uh, I probably will lose it here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit weird. I'm gonna say, I'm saying that Connie and Scott remain married and together through the end of season two. Hmm. Not going past that, um, but I think that they they remain in their current coupling uh, through the end of the season. I am at least hoping that next week we resume the El Confidente and Daphne in, in Mexico storyline. Uh, I haven't watched the uh, preview of, of next week's episode yet. Just going back to that first scene from the first episode with Paul Giamatti and they're all jumping off the plane. Uh, Ernie is wearing the mariachi costume in that scene, correct? Correct. And it occurred to me that, you know, in all the paintings El Confidente does, Ernie is wearing that costume and Ernie always points out, what are you, I'm not wearing a mariachi suit. And so... I'm thinking that that scene we saw was is El Confidente's dream and not what actually happens. Oh. And maybe something similar happens, or maybe it happens exactly the same, but without the mariachi suit, or maybe it is the real event. But, but just the fact, it just so occurred to me suddenly that the fact that we kept seeing him portraying events with Ernie as a mariachi... It made me think, you know what? I, and it, cause it, it had a dreamlike quality anyway. It might end up happening just like that. We'll, we'll see. But I feel like what we saw is going to end up being the dream. I'm not sure how it will relate to reality. And are they actually going to hook up with Paul Giamatti, El Marvin Metz, and have an adventure with him? Well, I, so I will say this. If you do watch this coming up on, you do get a quick, no real context, but you do get a quick... Paul Giamatti sighted okay, cool. in previews. Yeah, he's nice. at the All typewriter. Right. So he's in, and then maybe that kind of story, you know, those parts of the story will start moving fast. I love that, Jim. So you're saying that the cold opening to season two was an El Confidente dream that we witnessed. That's my prediction. 
good one. And you know I don't make a lot of predictions. We'll see. <laughs> That's right. You, you usually you make them shy big. about it. Um, I'm going to go a little bit fairly literal with my prediction this week. I think that the um, sludge that's underneath Orbis is the material um, that is needed to make gold. And, like, without that material, you can't make it. It's only, you know, and that the material, whatever it is, is a very rare component on Earth. And that's what's underneath Orbis, which is why Wallace Smith was there and why Connie sees that, like, ring of gold. So that... It's not oil like Captain said it was, but it is actually probably more valuable than oil because whatever that compound is, you know, like you need um, uranium number five or something to make a nuclear bomb. It's like whatever that sludge is underneath Orbis is what you need to actually create gold. That's my prediction. Ah, okay. And maybe that's even why then they built Orbis there in the first place. It's right. All it's it's almost like uh, Fort Knox around it because he's like protected. Because they said that right. he said while Smith was in South Beach, uh, Jocelyn says this. While Smith came to South Beach, I don't know why he ever left. To Southern California. Oh, is that what the line is? I thought I don't know. I thought it was South Beach. Long Beach. You're thinking Long Beach. Sorry, Long no, Beach. He, he says that he he came to California or Southern California and then was wondering why he left. Well, there's a lot in this episode. Um, We're still unpacking it, so I'm sure we miss a lot. You can find us on Twitter at Pod49. We we hang out in the Facebook fan group as well. Also, if you want to email us directly or whatnot, you can find that contact info in the show notes. We'd love to hear what we missed or your theories on any of this. This was obviously a pivotal episode and a singular artistic achievement as a standalone as well. With that, we'll see you at band night. Mm-hmm.